I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Um, now, I should say that... Oh, poor ecology. Ecology is an observational science. It wants to be a predictive science, and it has great theory envy of other sciences like physics and chemistry and so on. I mean, we've got Darwin. That's as good a theory as you get. But every so often, somebody says, ah, I know how it all works. And so I was taught in the 1950s at Stanford that there was this thing called succession, which led to a wonderful thing called a climax community. Uh, and so you know, a lake would grass over and gradually become forest, and then there would be a set of trees, and that would be it. And preservers would try to identify climax and then uh, uh, protect it forever. Climax went away. There's a few nostalgic uh, preservers who occasionally refer to it, but it turns out that things don't hold still in ecology, not in any form. And uh, sad to say, community went away. Uh, turns out that these various species deal very intimately with one another, and then things change, and they move on. Some north, some south, some away, some new ones arrive, and it's not a community anymore. We refer to it as an assemblage. Not quite as romantic. Where the romance is, I think, in ecology, is way longer than the four-year studies that almost all ecology uh, gets out of people going through their graduate program. Ecology is this thing which happens over centuries, millennia, and more. And the ecologist and illustrator who's really paid attention to that is here tonight, Laura Cunningham. Thanks for coming to this talk, which is about a project which I've been working on for the past 20 years, maybe longer, maybe 30 years. It was a, a project, even when I was a kid, I would walk around in the East Bay where I grew up. I grew up um, just north of Berkeley, and I would wonder what was the past like, what was my house like specifically, because um, I grew up in an area with suburbs and roads and cars and looking over the city. And even as a kid, I wanted to know what was that piece of ground like before the house. So I would imagine walking in a, a grassland with oaks and seeing a game trail, grasses, or even coming upon a coast live oak that had a big rub on the trunk. Because apparently grizzly bears like to rub their backs upon boulders and tree trunks. So childhood daydreams led to researching in about the 80s an idea for a book. This was a, a, an idea that went back something like 20 or 30 years that I wanted to publish a book and research what the Bay Area and maybe more of California, what it was like a thousand years ago. And there's a lot of really good books out there that have the before and after the city, like the photographs of San Francisco then and now. That was an inspiration but nobody had gone beyond the photographs and tried to do paintings of 
what the area looked like before cameras. So I w I'm a self-taught artist, um, really got into studying the oil paintings of, say, the Hudson School, Hudson River School, which is uh, some of the greatest artist naturalists in the 1800s, even 1700s, came from Europe, and they went west with some of the scientific explorers, and Albert Bierstadt is one, um, Church, William Keith, and they had their little oil painting sets, and they would sketch things like Yosemite Valley, the Rockies. And so I tried to get a feel of what if I had my oil sketch kit and I went back a thousand years into California and was just wandering around this grand landscape and just trying to take sketch notes and paint here and there scenes that I saw. So that was sort of the goal I had in mind was to produce a book that had that feel of an exploration of the past. So these are little oil painting sketches. They're mostly miniatures. Uh, a lot of them are oil on paper because that's what a lot of these 1800 oil painters would do. They'd have very nice cotton rag paper treated, stuff a bunch in a bag, put it on a mule, and have their paint sets and just whip out these little oil sketches. So when I was a kid, I would go to this creek. It's in Tilden Regional Park in the East Bay, Wildcat Creek. And I would cross the creek at the same spot for weekends, after school sometimes. And I began to see changes going across this creek in the same place. There's a little bridge that were greater than changes that you'd see over a year. They were, there were changes that I began to see over the course of 10, 15 years that were different than just summer and winter or the wet season and the dry season. I saw changes that you needed to observe the same place for decades to actually see that change happening. For example, the oil painting on the top right is a drought year when Wildcat Creek didn't flow at all. And I wondered as a kid, what happened to the fish? On the lower part, the lower right, if people were living in California during 1998-99, we had a huge El Nino event and it rained that January harder than I'd ever seen. Wildcat Creek became a monstrous flood and took out the bridge that I had crossed so many times as a kid. It was just a, a monstrous mud flow, destroyed roads, took out trees. And then after the floodwaters subsided, I crossed the creek and noticed that the creek bed had gone down two feet, just overnight, gouged down. Their change was sudden. So here's the street I grew up, just in the Richmond, Berkeley Hills, looking west towards Mount Tam, just a photograph I took long ago. And I tried to imagine what my neighborhood looked like before this scene. So doing some research, I painted this oil painting. This is the... East Bay with native grasslands, and you can see the Golden Gate without the bridge in San Francisco in this upper left. I would imagine walking on these grassy ridge tops with sea breezes waving purple needlegrass stems and a sunset and a summer evening. 
And if I went down to the Albany mudflats, I might see this. <laughs> this is a painting actually based on, there's a historical report at Monterey Bay in the 1800s where there's a beached whale and a bunch of grizzlies were feeding on it, and it actually ripped a hole into the whale and we're going inside of it. Now, I must admit, this scene was a little harder to reconstruct. This took a long time, a lot of imagination. This is Knob Hill looking east. You can barely see the Bay Bridge there. And it was interesting, just a couple of weeks ago, I was walking on O'Farrell Street, and I don't know what they're doing, putting in a subway or something, but they had ripped a giant hole, and you could see some of the sand under the street, some of the old, ancient San Francisco. And then I tried to get it in really close, but there was some sort of brickwork. Was this like an old street of bricks from a century ago under O'Farrell Street? I don't know, but there's always clues around to the ancient past. So putting together some research, this is the scene I came up with. This is before... and. This is 200 years ago, my theory of what the same spot looked like. So Coit Tower, it would be on that hill to the right, Yerba Buena Island. Market Street in downtown would be on that bay, which has since been landfilled, and of course, skyscrapers towering above. But the scene has things like blue blossom lilac, a type of ceanothus shrub, which is flowering purple. Coyote brush, California sagebrush, a lot of native bunch grasses. And you can see a fallen elk antler. There are tule elk roaming these hills in the past. Moving to the East Bay, Oakland. This is Lake Merritt. Just some photographs I took and pieced together. What did this look like in the past? Lake Merritt was a, a saltwater inlet of the bay and of course, Oakland, named for all the coast live oaks. And this is where I grew up, El Cerrito Plaza, saw a lot of changes from a big box store, department store, to the present Barnes & Noble, all the different chains. So it's a big parking lot now, and that's Albany Hill, covered with blue gum eucalyptus, which were imported from Australia decades ago and a futile attempt to grow wood for building. But the, the eucalyptus turned out to be really brittle, not very good for much. But you could use clues to try to get an idea of what this scene looked like from things such as this. This is called a diseño. It's a map, hand-drawn map, from the Mexican period of California, which was 1821 to 1846, and it was hand-drawn to define a land grant for a rancho. And they were really useful because they would put in the groves of trees, they would draw in creeks, they would sometimes put in individual uh, dotted redwoods here and there. So this is actually of El Cerrito. It shows Albany Hill and the creek that still flows under El Cerrito Plaza, the original Bayshore. So here's that scene of El Cerrito Plaza as I imagine it a thousand years ago. Grizzlies feeding on fallen acorns under an oak. The bay beyond, Albany Hill, 
was a grassland. So what I try to do, I wanted to do this for every city in California, but that turned out to be just the publisher said, no, we got to stop it. You can go on forever. <laughs> but I would try to go to different places. This was the mission at Santa Barbara and take photos, get a nice scene, and then try to research that exact piece of land and try to reconstruct what it looked like in the past. So this is my oil painting on top, and you can see the ridge line is the same, same perspective and view. This was a little easier to reconstruct because, of course, the Spanish missionaries came right to that spot and tried to describe it. And they mention scattered oaks, a lot of grass. A lot of it was burned off by Indians. And there were also tall grasses that were the size of a man on a horse. They came up to the saddle horn. And they, of course, didn't really say what species of grass, which doesn't help us today. But when you go north of Santa Barbara, along a similar stretch of coastline, there are these big, tall grasses, and they're native. They're a type of giant wild rye. And so I decided that might have been what he was seeing. So I put those, the big uh, brownish bunches, into the painting. Going inland, this is the Friant Dam on the San Joaquin River today near Fresno. Long ago, it was a free-flowing river, of course, with salmon runs. And then going into Southern California, this is just north of Hollywood, San Fernando Valley. And I would try to pick a scene that at least had maybe a tiny remnant of something I could go hike up into in these hills and get some idea of what plants or birds were still living in that area. So in the past, this scene might have looked like this. Giant grizzlies roaming the hills. Southern California was interesting because it had the largest bears in the lower 48. They were the size of Alaskan brown bears. One was shot, and it, it's hearsay, but it weighed 2,200 pounds, a grizzly that weighed a ton. They were all over Southern California. They were all over San Francisco, a little smaller up here. But I've been doing these talks around California, and a couple of, about a month ago I did a talk in San Fernando Valley, and it's really great to meet people who have new information that can add to the theory, my painting image theory of what the past looked like. And this fellow came up and he said, well, my grandmother was born in San Fernando Valley, and she used to paint what it looked like. And you are right, it didn't have any trees. All of her paintings just show this vast grassland covered with wildflowers. So I thought, great, that's a nice confirmation that this painting is, has some evidence to back it up. So the techniques I use to reconstruct these scenes are a lot of field work, just hiking around California and taking notes of what I see, just being an old-fashioned naturalist. <clears throat> a lot of library research, that was really important. There's a lot of good history books and descriptions, old photographs, paintings in museums, historic maps. And even their vacant lots, this is uh, 
my sister and I walking around El Cerrito trying to get some idea for the painting reconstructing El Cerrito Plaza, and we found a native grass right on this strip along a street. And I don't think anyone planted it. It was just an empty lot, had not been built. The other photograph is of a creek that had never been cemented over, just flowing right by houses, a clue to the past. So I take all of this evidence and research back to my studio, and I begin a painting with a little thumbnail sketch, just a little idea sketch, scribbled quickly on paper. And then the next stage, I take it to a more detailed pencil sketch. This happens to be a scene of the past of a Maidu village with the Sacramento River flowing into the delta, the north delta. And this is a stage which is useful to send or email these images to experts and try to get some feedback. And one anthropologist told me, well, the Maidu village probably had different types of architecture in their houses. It was more varied than you made it. So the next stage, I'll add color. And you can see I varied the, the huts. And then I sometimes take these into a large oil painting full size, like an oil on panel or canvas. But for the purposes of this book, they're mostly small, such as this painting of a grizzly long ago. This is in the South Coast Range. So the, the golden bear, the grizzly, that was quite a fascinating topic to think that these grizzlies were roaming about right around San Francisco, the East Bay, apparently abundantly. And it would have been quite a different time to live in the state and try to be a hiker or <laughs> any sort of recreationist. So to get an idea of that, I spent a lot of time in Yellowstone National Park because that was a fairly safe and easy place to go see wild grizzlies. So these are some sketches from my sketchbook. But it's amazing how many things are named after grizzlies today in the state. There's Grizzly Peaks, Bear Creek. There's even a Mount Baldy in Southern California, and that has a story behind it. There's apparently a grizzled old bear that had been in a fight, and another bear had ripped off the fur on top of its head. So they they often had names for these grizzlies in the 1800s, so that was Baldy, and he often hung out on this peak. So there's a lot of history you can pick up even from place names. And in my researches trying to reconstruct what California grizzlies were like, I discovered that they ate a very wide variety of foods. They were big enough to chase down and kill a bull elk, which is the size of a horse. They like to use their claws to dig up ground squirrels and gophers and also the bulbs of wild onion. But they ate a huge variety of plants from manzanita berries to clover to California blackberry. And of course, they also like to eat salmon, the abundant salmon and trout that were in our rivers. This is a painting of grizzlies feeding on salmon in the Sacramento River, once a common scene. You can see the long claws that these grizzlies use to dig. That might have had a real influence on the grasslands in the past, all this tilling and rooting by grizzlies. 
But as we know, the grizzly is no more in the state. I lived briefly in a town just near Watsonville called Coralitos, and I learned that that actually was named for the bear and bull fights that often happened in Coralitos, which means little corral, the bull pen. So the last grizzly in California was shot in 1922 in Fresno County. However, one was seen in Sequoia National Park in 1924. So there's a couple of other contenders around the state for the last grizzly. There's also some sightings uh, in the Los Padres National Forest east of Santa Barbara. And then they were gone. Some of the other animals that were very common all over California, Central and Northern California, including San Francisco, were elk. We had tule elk here. We had very large, dark-colored Roosevelt elk up in the Redwood Zone. And we even had the big antlered Rocky Mountain elk in the sagebrush country of Northeastern California. But going to Yellowstone was really interesting to see how grizzlies and elk interacted because I was always interested in how the whole ecosystem might have appeared in California. So I went to Yellowstone one spring, and this sketch on the upper right shows cow elk had just dropped their calves. And I learned something that spring that grizzlies really like to eat calves, newborns, an easy target. But the calves are born without any sort of odor whatsoever. Not even a dog can sniff them out. So these cow elk, were they knew where the calf was hidden, but the grizzly walked right by it. So these are scenes that were probably played over and over again in our own state. So there's a lot of records of where elk were found, and you can get a pretty good idea of historically the range of elk in California. Here's an oil painting of Tule elk in a blue oak savanna in the hills east of San Jose. In our state capital, excellent elk habitat in the past. This is how it might have appeared hundreds of years ago. Some people might think that's an improvement. But this is a valley oak savanna with herds of elk and antelope grazing on native bunch grasses. The other hoofed animal that was very common all over California, abundant, including San Francisco, were pronghorn antelope. This is a, an oil painting of antelope in the Mojave Desert at sunset. And this project, I sometimes wish it could have just been a website because then I could keep updating it. A book is very final in ways, and I have to leave it go and keep hearing stories of how we are restoring California. And a friend who is a biologist just told me a couple of weeks ago that they're going to reintroduce desert pronghorn antelope to um, south of Joshua Tree National Park. So for the first time in more than 100 years, we'll have this scene again. They are native to California still. They still exist in the northeast part of the state. And there are a couple of places around the Bay Area, near the Bay Area, where you can actually try to go see antelope. The, um, there's a place called Mines Road, which is south of Livermore, where private ranchers have allowed 
the Department of Fish and Game to reintroduce antelope. And I've tried many times to drive on this road and find them, but never succeeded. So they're almost in the Bay Area. And there are other animals, predators, of course, that were preying on all these elk and antelope and deer, which are sometimes surprising to learn were in California. Wolves were reported all over. They were not common. This is a, a big oil painting, a 40 by 60 oil painting of a white wolf in what is now Yosemite National Park. And once again, going to Yellowstone was really good to see the reintroduced wolf pack that was there interacting with elk, grizzlies, antelope. You could get an idea of this entire ecosystem that might have existed in California. So we would have wolf and bear watching parties, people from England and all over these states, and we'd huddle together on the side of the road next to our cars because there are all these bears roaming about, and we'd have spotting scopes, and you'd get up at dawn, before dawn, and just scan with binoculars in your spotting scope, and then you'd hear in the early morning the howl of a lone wolf. And then we were lucky enough to get this one one morning. Just a one lone wolf came out onto a meadow and caught a meadow mouse, a little vole, and just played with it for hours. Didn't eat it, just tossed it up in the air like a dog. But even stranger in California, we had native jaguars. And there are reports of jaguars from San Diego all the way up to San Francisco. So apparently in the oak woodlands along the coast range all the way to here, there were jaguars hunting deer and other animals in these dense woodlands. They also went up the Colorado River from Mexico almost to Las Vegas. So this is a painting of desert jaguars along the Colorado River. And of course, California condors, one of our great state legacies, all over the state in the past. And I was lucky enough in the 1980s to go sketch and watch for weeks on end some of the last wild condors. Back in the 80s, there was something like eight or nine left in the wild, in the whole world. And the biologists had decided that because they were getting lead poisoning from eating the carcasses that hunters had not been able to catch, deer would get shot with lead bullets and then run into the brush and die, and the hunter couldn't find them. And then these condors were eating them, but they were getting lead poisoning from the bullets. So a decision was made to net all of these condors, take them into the captivity in various zoos, captive breed them, and then release them. But it was sort of a sad period, because in about 1985, we thought, well... This is it. This, they're going to catch all the last wild condors, and will they ever be released again? Will this breeding program work? So I went down there, and again, just you have to have a lot of patience to write this book. Spent hours with a spotting scope, and usually we would see nothing for days. And then suddenly we'd see a little black spot come over the hills, and it was a huge condor. And a <coughs> A bunch of them would land next to this little calf carcass that the biologists had planted. And they actually, the biologists would hide in a hole in the ground and have an explosive trigger that would fire a net 
over the condor. That's how they caught them. But meanwhile, they were very interesting to observe. So I reconstructed a scene long ago based on these observations when condors were still common. But I noticed that when you watch documentaries about African animals and you see all the African vultures coming on a carcass and they're fighting and squabbling, this wasn't happening with the California condors. What we saw, they, they seemed to have a pecking order, a dominance hierarchy, where one or two condors would feed for hours and all the other condors would have to wait. And the golden eagles would have to wait their turn too. And these eagles are big, giant talons, but they were a little bit smaller than the condors. And one time, this eagle came down, tried to sneak up to the carcass, and a giant condor came, landed, and opened its huge black and white wings, and the golden eagle ran downhill, scared. An oil painting of what may happen soon in the future, bald eagles and California condors feeding on salmon in a redwood stream. So the, the good news is the condors are doing very well. The captive breeding program worked, and they're being reintroduced to places like Pinnacles. And one this year came probably up from Pinnacles all the way to Mount Hamilton, which is technically the Bay Area. So cal wild California condors that have been successfully bred are inching their way up to our area. And then, of course, there is the salmon that all these grizzlies and condors fed on in the past. This is Carquina Strait long ago, without the bridges, the ships. And I used to think, sitting on this hillside, looking down at the gap in the coast range where the combined flows of the Sacramento and San Joaquin pour through into the bay, what was it like at certain times of year when a million four-foot-long fish crowded through that strait up hundreds of miles of streams and rivers all through the Sierra? It must have been amazing. Most of those salmon were the Chinook salmon that get really big. They were our most abundant large salmon in California into the main, main stem rivers of the Sacramento, San Joaquin, all up into small streams in the Sierra. These are uh, the spawning colors. They're pretty dark. Those are eggs. But I used to work for the California De Department of Fish and Game, and I learned a couple of the secret places where you can still see these Chinook salmon spawning. So this is an oil painting of a tributary off the Smith River in December near Oregon. And the dark forms painted there are the big salmon, like three feet, four foot, and they're going under these rapids and using their tail to make what's called a red, which is a big scoop in the gravel, and then they lay their eggs. The other common salmon that we had in California was the coho. This is a male in its spawning colors. They just get brilliant red. And these were more of the coastal salmon in the small creeks and streams from Oregon all the way down to nearly Santa Barbara and maybe even south of that in the past. So this is a painting of a mother grizzly and cubs 
coming to feed on the spawned out cohos. And it's based on a, a, an area that you can still see this scene, minus the bears. It's Lagunitas Creek in Marin County. This is one of the few places that the cohos still run up. And they may be running right now. Because whenever rains come and, and increase the flow, that's when they go up. So I learned that, there, of course, we've had kind of a problem maintaining the huge abundance of these millions of salmon of the past. They're quite declined now, and there's various reasons for that. But one of them I learned was the quality of their spawning habitat, these crystal clear streams with the gravel. Sometimes the gravel will get what's called embedded with silt. And on the right there, that illustrates how this gravel is very important. It has to have oxygenated water flowing through it. Just like when you put a, uh, you have a fish tank and you have your bubbler. They need really clean, clear, oxygenated water flowing through that gravel to give oxygen to the eggs and the baby fish that then live in that gravel. So historically, what's happened in the 1800s and 1900s is some episodes of clear-cutting just allowed huge amounts of erosion to pour all the silt into these salmon streams, and that clogged up a lot of the gravel. But even today, we have some poor management of a dirt road where, say, they'll put in a, a, an underpipe that's not big enough, and it will just get clogged with debris and then erode away. But what was very hopeful about all this is what people are doing to restore these streams and bring the salmon back. I traveled up to the Klamath River in Northern California and talked with a group of native tribes, local people, residents, government agencies, and they were all working together to restore the Klamath River, to bring back steelhead trout and salmon. But what they told me was, you don't start with the fish, you don't even start with the river, you go up to these ridge tops on top of the canyon ridges and the mountains, and that's where you start. And you try to imitate how elk would have grazed a bunch grassland so that it wouldn't be overgrazed like we sometimes do now, so that these grasses could grow deep roots. And you could even have cattle, but you had to manage them where the grasses would grow into the soil and prevent siltation and erosion. And you had to manage the forest so that nutrients would fall off these great trees and then flow into the water, and it would provide nutrients, grow insects, and fish food. So it was very interesting to see this holistic view of people saying, well, we're going to restore this entire watershed, and then we'll just automatically get salmon back. So in the book, I also talk about our very amazing coasts and seas, shorelines. This is the Hayward-Fremont Bay, Bay Shore, long ago. Coyotes prowling on marshes and white-fronted geese. And San Francisco Bay had, and some of the coasts, the protected bays on the coast, had these huge shoals and schools of small fish like anchovy and herring and sardines. 
and it would attract whales and sea lions and fur seals feeding on this. And I used to think that this was a thing of the past, but last February, my sister, who lives in Richmond, saw something that I thought was truly amazing, and it was just because she was walking on the Bay Trail. It was in February, and she saw a thousand seagulls covering the water, the shallow bay shore waters, and they were jumping and diving into the water and just flying and making a, a quite a racket calling, and she couldn't figure out why these gulls were here. She'd never seen that many seagulls. But fortunately, a fisherman came by and said, you are lucky enough to be here on the one or two days where the herring are running. So they have this, they blacken the water. These herring come and they apparently still come to the, the East Bay, the San Francisco Bay. They lay their eggs, which get attached to little seaweed underwater, and then there's just a feeding frenzy of birds. But apparently they had had an unusually good herring run this February, so she was lucky to see that. But there were also stranger animals that inhabited our coast. This is the stellar sea cow, which bones have been found in Monterey Bay 18,000 years ago. It was 35 feet long and weighed 10 tons and apparently floated around and just on the surface and ate kelp. Now, since 18,000 years ago, the climate changed, and it really likes cold water, so its range shrank up into around the Alaskan islands, that area, so it was only found in Alaska, and it was discovered to science in the year 1741, and then went extinct in 1768. It was eaten by sailors. There's some other strange birds that were recorded in California, and there's some real mysteries that I haven't been able to figure out. This one is the, it's called the gong, because that's the, the sound it made. It's also called a giant petrel. It had an eight-foot wingspan and was recorded in the 1800s, again in Monterey Bay, because there was just a lot of people there. And it would float around the bay, picking at, whale blubber from some of these whaling operations that went on. Today, it's only found in the southern hemisphere. It only breeds around Antarctica, and it is in the entire last 150 years never been sighted in the entire northern hemisphere. Why? That's quite a mystery. Why it was found in Monterey Bay. But there are even stranger animals. Yet, this is an extinct diving goose that was found on the Channel Islands and up into central California. Its bones have been found in the Emeryville shell mound, some other shell mounds, and it was flightless. So it had vestigial wings like a, one of the Galapagos cormorants. It could not fly. It's uh, related to sea ducks called scoters, and it was big. It was the size of a Canada goose. And paleontologists looking at its skull think it had a very heavy-duty bill and strong neck muscles and dove under shallow water to wrench off muscles. And that was its entire life. It never flew. It went extinct about 3,700 years ago, and nobody knows why. And this is 
another mystery is it's a lot easier to see the evidence, but to see the cause of that evidence is difficult. Was it changing water temperatures due to gradual climate changes, or was it overhunting by Native Americans? Nobody knows. There are a lot of interesting habitats in California that I also wanted to research for the book. And I started with the grassland, which was a tough one to reconstruct, but that's where my house was. I learned it was the most of the Richmond Berkeley Hills was a vast open grassland. And I get that question a lot too, is people wonder if there were a lot of trees that have been cut down and that's why everything is so open. But when you read the historical accounts of ships coming in, entering the bay for in the 1700s, 1800s, that's usually what they comment on, is how grassy everything was all around the bay. And then they could see the redwoods coming up above Oakland and a patch of oaks right where Oakland is. There's another patch of oaks on the north face of Angel Island. And some of the canyons had little oak groves, but it was mostly grassland, including San Francisco, full of grasshoppers, they say, ground squirrels and rabbits. Here's Silicon Valley, long ago in the past. And it's, the hills were just open grassland with, this is a nodding wild rye and bluegrass, native bunch grasses. And San Jose was south of the bay were just a, a series, a maze of tidal channels and marshes. Now, this, the manuscript for this book was gigantic because I wanted to cover everything and make it a huge academic encyclopedia. And the publisher, Heyday, said, well, we're going to have to trim this down. They actually gave me 372 pages and 70 color illustrations. And then it took four years to get the manuscript down to that, the book that's there. They did a good job but they sent all my manuscript off to a designer who arranged everything as you see in the book now, and they sent, right before printing, sent off to the printer, they sent me a PDF file, um, emailed it to me and said, can you go through the whole 372 pages and catch any mistakes? So I did, and I caught a lot of mistakes. Bird's sketches were mislabeled, but I missed two things and probably only I care about this. Most people wouldn't care. But one of them is that painting shows California oat grass is a really interesting native bunch grass. My sister has one planted in her backyard. And it's a strange native grass because the stems grow horizontally along the ground. And you can see that in the photograph. And I drew a sketch of it with the stem along the ground. It might have been an adaptation to elk stomping on it, and they couldn't get at the seeds. Well, the designer turned that horizontal, or hor uh, vertical, and so you can see it's all vertical along with all the other grasses, because that's how grasses should grow. And I just missed it, but that's okay. Here's an oil painting of um, a really interesting type of habitat within our vast and very native grasslands in California. This is a vernal pool. 
And this changed very quickly through the year from in winter, it was full of rainwater and had fairy shrimp and tadpole shrimp and frogs and salamanders breeding in it. And then in the spring, that would all dry up and there'd be rings of wildflowers around these. And then in the summer, special kinds of inch or two inch high native grasses would grow green in the center of these that are endemic only to this type of habitat, only in California. And here I imagine pronghorn antelope coming to graze on them. So this is a rare habitat that still exists, but it was a lot more common in the past. Some of these were recorded where the Oakland area is and the flatlands in Berkeley. Here's an oil painting of, again, my neighborhood in the past, a grassland looking west towards the Golden Gate long ago. Now, most of the book is the last 10,000 years of California history, because, and that's called the Holocene, which has been a generally, the climate has been more even. Um, the animals that have existed here are a certain, the modern animals we see now, wolves, grizzlies, elk, pronghorn. But prior to 10,000 years ago was the Ice Age, and for a million years, two million years beyond that, was a very different kind of California. And I couldn't help a couple of times in the book go back a little further and enter this Ice Age world. So this is San Francisco Bay 40,000 years ago. And when they built the first Bay Bridge, they put the giant pilings deep into the Bay mud, and they hit bedrock but they also hit bones, these fossils of animals that lived before the bay was a bay. And when this was a, a big valley, they hit the bones of an extinct giant bison, which was the Ice Age bison that you see in the La Brea tar pits. It was huge, six feet at the shoulder, and had much larger horns than our modern bison. And extinct horses. There are native horses all over the San Francisco Bay in the Ice Age. And it was before the bay because, of course, all these giant glaciers that covered the northern continents in the Ice Age locked up a lot of seawater. So the, the actual ocean shore was 50 miles out to where about the Farallon Islands are now. And San Francisco was a valley. This was not a bay the bay gradually entered through the Golden Gate thousands of years later. The oak woodland is another very important habitat all over California. This is an oil painting of Ohlone women pounding acorns in bedrock mortars, and it's based on uh, Berkeley Mortar Rock Park, which you can still go and actually see these very boulders with these exact mortars in them. And right now it's surrounded by houses. But oaks had a cyclic ecology that we may have disrupted at times now. This is a dense summer jungle of valley oaks, which was very common along the rivers, such as Sacramento, San Joaquin, draped with curtains of California wild grapes, but in the winter, before the age, 
of dams and levees, all the snowmelt from the sear in the spring would spread out over vast areas of the Central Valley and flood the roots of these valley oaks and give them nutrients. There's some problems now with the lack of oaks reproducing, and some of it may be due to these ecological changes that have happened where we don't allow these valleys to flood anymore and have huge inland seas. But that's precisely what led to all the abundance and fertility of the Central Valley soils. This is, I think this was a cotton field that I took a picture of after it had been turned and harvested somewhere near Bakersfield. And in the past, this area, this is a particular spot called the Kawea Oaks. And it was lush, had huge towering valley oaks, and it had a native grass called creeping wild rye, which was one of our few non-bunch grasses. It was a rhizomatous grass, a sod grass, that grew over acres and acres, and it was green in the summer. And when the first Europeans entered this Kawea Oaks, they said, well, who, who's been trimming all these trees and mowing the grass. It looks like people have been managing this area. It looks like an English park. And in fact, people were managing this area for thousands of years. Another interesting oak habitat is now under Hetch Hetchy Reservoir today with the dam. And in the past, California black oaks, ponderosa pines grew in this valley similar to Yosemite Valley. In all the researches for this book, though, what I found the most interesting, more so than the grizzlies and these habitats, was the processes that caused this change over 10,000 years. Processes like fire, flood, climate, that we think we can control sometimes, but we may not be able to. We need to learn to live with them like people in the past. This is a, a Chumash village, and you can see that there's a lot of evidence of fires in the area. There's some smoke on the hills. People for thousands of years were setting fires to almost every habitat in California. And I've heard a term called fire stick farming, where instead of using a plow, you use a stick and set fire to habitat to maintain it with fire. And I talked to some native elders who told me, well, we burned everything, the marshes under the oaks, the chaparral, the grasslands, and they had a very complicated system of, for grasslands, it might have been every year in a certain area, in oak woodlands, it might have been every five years. I mean, people just now are starting to discover how complex a system this may have been for thousands of years shaping the state. And then, therefore, there's a lot of plants that are fire-adapted. In the chaparral especially, there's two kinds of plants that respond differently to fires. One is like manzanita, doesn't die, but has a root underground, and it sprouts. Another kind, the adult shrub dies, but it throws out a bunch of seeds, and the seeds grow really quickly, and it becomes a shrubland again. 
So learning how important fire is to the California habitats and landscape, I had to become somewhat of a fire follower and go seek out control burns and even places that had been accidentally scarred with fire and go see what happened, observe the land. So this is a, a valley oak woodland that I painted um, near this, an accidental burn along a highway. But it imitated perhaps a native burn because it, it was a low intensity grass fire. And when I came back about two or three weeks later, the bottom painting, I thought, well, that looks bad. All the oaks look dead. This is a bad scene. But when I walked into this scene, all the blue oaks had sprouted new green leaves. They had just been singed. They weren't dead at all. And there were actually some native purple needle grass bunches that even after two or three weeks were growing new green leaves. So the whole landscape was coming back in less than a month. Here's a painting in the Tehachapi Mountains in Southern California. And this woman has burned over this hill, slo hill slope several months ago of gray pine, interior live oak, and shrubs. And she knows that in several months she can come back through and collect different things that the fire has caused to grow. Because after a fire, some shrubs will grow very straight new twigs. And these are excellent for making baskets. And she also knows that fires will attract elk, which the hunters hunted, because elk enjoy dining on the new green growth of grass right after a burn. And flood is another important process that I discovered that happens all over, and we try to contain it but aren't always successful. Sacramento got a huge flood in the 1850s, which drowned the whole city. People were rowing around the streets in boats. The rivers are, seem to be almost alive. This is a sketch of the Sacramento River, one particular segment showing how it, the bins will migrate over 100 years. So the bins will straighten out, move, and 100 years isn't even that long of a time to have such a, a change in the bank. And then this is a map showing these inland seas that would form in the Central Valley before the age of dams and levees. The snowmelt would create big, huge inland lakes. One of the most famous was Buena Vista Lake in the San Joaquin Valley, a huge inland sea where people had very large tule boats, larger than in this painting, snow geese flying around, abundant waterfowl, elk, and that's the high Sierra's snow in the background. And working as a biologist, I learned that there are some birds that were having trouble uh, protecting right now, and it's partly because we think we can just manage the bird, but we have to actually look at their entire landscape that they're living in. Some of these birds, like southwestern willow flycatcher and Hutton's vireo, are adapted to floods. They really like to nest in areas, little creeks with overgrown willow thickets that regularly flood and have uh, a rich, swampy undergrowth. 
And because of a lot of management practices, these are rare now. Here's San Bernardino Valley today, the Inland Empire. And what was it like in the past? Here's the Santa Ana River with cottonwoods, willows, and sycamores. And it regularly flooded out, creating these nice marshes with rushes, alkali, sacaton, grasses. And these are kingbirds perching in a giant sunflower that grew to be 15 feet tall, a native sunflower. And this was thought to have gone extinct in 1937, this Los Angeles sunflower, they called it. But recently, and this story keeps changing when I, every time I talk to a botanist, I get the latest version. So in the book, it's already outdated. This, um, they thought they rediscovered the Los Angeles giant sunflower about 10 or 12 years ago, right next to LA. Unbelievably, nobody had noticed this 15-foot flower growing there. And it's, um, they, they analyzed it, got really excited, but then they realized it was apparently a new species. It was a little bit different from the collections that showed the old Los Angeles sunflower. So now it's a new type of wildflower called the Newhall sunflower. It was found in Newhall Ranch. But I still think that's amazing that a 15-foot-tall plant right next to one of the largest cities in America was just discovered. And then climate, uh, you could probably write another whole book on just climate because that is such a complex subject. But what I thought was interesting in my research was I couldn't always link cause and effect, and so that was um, an interesting part of trying to reconstruct the climate in the past and even trying to see what would happen in the future by looking at the past. But it, it was, it's pretty tough. There's some questions that stumped me. For example, there's a, a researcher who studied blue oaks in Tejon Ranch area, which is Southern California, Hugh, one of the biggest ranches that has a giant chunk of pretty pristine California. And he took um, drills and he drilled into these living oak trees just to get tree ring counts. And he also could see the fire scars and tried to date how many fires swept through this woodland. So the top bar chart shows the number of trees each year, little baby trees that reached maturity. And it shows that around 1850s, suddenly a bunch of young trees grew into giant oak trees. And this basically is showing that the oak woodland we see today grew up in the 1850s, and we haven't gotten a lot of oaks growing into trees since then. Now, what caused this peak in trees growing up to be adult trees from saplings? That's the part that is really tricky to tease out, because right at the same time, 1850s, the bottom chart shows how there was a little ice age in California, in the Sierra Nevada, prior to that time, lasted 400, 200 years, and there were growing glaciers in the Sierras. And then, right about 1850, they stopped growing and started retreating. So this shows ice levels and buildup suddenly going into this decline. 
And so you think, well, maybe it was climate change that triggered something in these trees. But the fire scar history that the researcher found saw that there were apparently natives, native people were burning this woodland regularly, almost yearly, until about 1850. And then suddenly, no more fires, because that's when Tejon Ranch became a ranch, and the new management style was no fire. We're, we're going to have um, a lot of grass. So at the 1850s, fires were completely stopped. And I learned that fire actually will kill a lot of the pests, such as ground squirrels, that eat the acorns. So perhaps this lack of acorns growing into trees was due to no, uh, an abundance of ground squirrels. But at the same time, 1850s, that's when the big cattle herds were brought in. For the first time, Tejon Ranch had large herds of cattle, and cattle like to eat acorns and browse on saplings. So there's a lot of possible causes for the patterns we see in the past, and we can only keep gathering more evidence. Some other interesting climate phases that we've had are El Ninos, where warm water will often come up and go pretty far north off the coast of California, and this will bring with it southern tropical species like tuna. And for fishermen, this is a boon, having these warm phases. And it was interesting, I learned that the word tuna actually originated in California. There were tuna clubs that were off of San Diego, Santa Barbara, and L.A., and they caught a fish called a tunny. That's the original spelling of it. Later became tuna. And these tuna clubs thrived. That city of Avalon and the Channel Islands was at their headquarters. But then the warm water phase left, and so did the tuna. And a decline in sport fishing happened. But it it's comes back once in a while, and we get tuna coming far up almost to San Francisco. There's some other strange birds that might be related to climate change that have been recorded in the past. This is um, a painting of a white-fronted magpie jay. And if there are any bird watchers in the audience, you're probably thinking this isn't in the bird books. But it was sighted in California in the 1800s, um, and it now only lives in Costa Rica and a little bit of southern Mexico. But for some reason, it was, and it was even recorded in Oregon. So in the 1800s, did we, there was some sort of cooler climate, or was it wetter? to bring these tropical birds up. And there's a pattern here. It wasn't just somebody mistaking one odd bird and misidentifying it. Uh, some of the early ornithologists, John Townsend, who is a, a famous pioneer ornithologist, recorded this strange woodpecker in the mountains of Southern California. It's called the imperial woodpecker, the largest woodpecker in the world. It is related to ivory bill woodpeckers. And today, it's completely retreated away from California and only lives in central Mexico and old growth pine mountains. So why it was seen in our state two centuries ago, no one knows. But even stranger, there was a, a naturalist who, his name was John Zantus, and he was an army medic, but he was also a great naturalist. 
and he was stationed at Fort Tejon, which is along Highway 5, where it enters the, the Grapevine Pass. And in 1857, he was such a good pioneering scientist that he recorded a lot of the animals that lived in California and mailed his specimens back to the Smithsonian. And of course, he had a gun. He didn't have a camera. So he would go around shooting birds and animals and grizzlies and skinning them and shipping the skins back to the Smithsonian. Um, this is the way they did it back then. But one day, he climbed up this tree to get to a hawk's nest. And he looked into the hawk's nest, and he found the head of a parrot, a big green parrot with a patch of red on it. And he, he said, oh, well, this is a bad specimen. I don't want to mail this back. So he said, I'll, I'll shoot a whole one another time. But he never saw another one. And he wrote a letter to the biologist back at the Smithsonian. And he said, you know, I'm really sorry I didn't collect that parrot head because I've heard other people talk about flocks of parrots outside of San Diego. And I've talked to some people about this. And they say, well, it was just people had pet parrots and they got away. But this was 1857. And that is possible. But it is also possible that a native thick-billed parrot or a different species, it was apparently a large one, was coming into California because of some different climate or different habitat that we don't have today because of some change in some ecological process. So I'm, I have a theory that it might have been thick-billed parrots. So I have a painting of those living in California. But it's still a mystery. So what can we do to maybe take a little bit of this early California and try to bring a little bit of it back? Some people will come up to me and say, well, you just want to get rid of all the cities, right, and go back to this, this time. And I tell them, no, I, I enjoy our culture, and I really like California, but I think it would be really nice to bring some of this back, some of the healthy, old ecosystems and some of these ecological processes in the past, I think it actually could be very important to learn to live with fire and flood and some of this climate change that people have learned to live with thousands of years ago. This is just my sister over in Richmond. She's tried to restore that same native grassland that used to live on the hills in the East Bay in her little tiny yard in the, the suburbs. So she has native wildflowers, native bunch grasses. And it can, it can be tricky because the city of Richmond actually knocked on her door and said, you need to cut these weeds. <laughs> so he, she has a, a process of education to try to get the city to accept her little bit of old California. So I, in conclusion, I can't resist going back to the Ice Ages 20,000 years ago to see how different California has changed. We think that California is, you look at the land and it's always been that way, but it's always changing. And the farther you go back in time, sometimes it's unrecognizable. This is um, a scene that was all over the Bay Area in the Ice Age, giant Colombian mammoths roaming about, packs of saber-toothed cats, sometimes going after their, the baby mammoths, and the largest 
North American mammalian land predator ever to live, the giant short-faced bear. It was six feet at the shoulder and designed to run. So it may have looked much fiercer and made the grizzly appear tame. So, and thank you for coming and I hope you enjoyed my glimpse of early California. Thanks. Let's go have a seat. See right here. Well, of course, Paul, somebody has a question. Uh, any predictions for what California will look like in the next 100, 1,000, and 10,000 years? Yeah, that's always, that's the trickiest question because I've really studied the past a lot. And then to try to apply that to the future, I just think it's, that's a tough proposition. So what I try to do is say, well, look at those ecological processes I was talking about, like fire and flood and the climate change, and try to apply those to the future. Like, we're not going to be able to totally control what California landscapes will look like, but we can try to guide some of those ecological processes into the future to keep our habitats healthy. So if you take a piece of land, you're not going to be able to restore it to exactly how it was in the past. And you're not going to be able to exactly control what species are there 200 years from now. But if you can help it along by, say, doing some control burns or letting the creek flood it once in a while, that can help it take care of itself. You might actually guide that piece of land to a healthier future. So I try to look at it in a more abstract fashion. Well, it's interesting. This is the first I've heard of a kind of a go-with-it sense about climate change. And even though humans are engaged in, uh, in pushing it, uh, nevertheless, climate shifted all during the time that you look. Ice ages and stuff like that. So there's a kind of an accommodationist view that emerges from this. Well, you know, stuff comes and goes, the sea level rises and falls. Um, go with it. Is that your view by this time? I definitely think we can be more sustainable as we are now, but I'm not a believer that we can control nature. So I am of the thought that adapting to the change that may come in whatever form is a really healthy uh, thing to learn. I mean, I'm not against trying to lower carbon emissions. I think we should definitely be doing that, mm -hmm. go with renewable energy. But I, I am also a believer in um, these processes can't always be completely controlled, as I've learned in the past. So oh, learning to live with them is also really important, I think. You know, there's a, I realize, a period missing. Um, so the Ice Age is up to 12,000, 10,000 years ago. And then it gets warm, and the water comes in and fills the bay. But also we got humans around at that point. And they're killing megafauna, the ones that don't kill them, and uh, burning. And so, in a sense, we never saw a post-Ice Age non-human environment in California. That's true, yeah. 
And I wonder if there's anything like between the ice ages, because there are nine big ones and then spaces between, do you get any sense of what it was like between the ice ages before humans showed up? You know, there's kind of an interesting story I learned about um, the back to the grasslands, and there seem to be two phases of the history of our native grasslands, and they learned this from the soil, looking at the soil. Hmm. So in the Ice Age, you had less grass and more megafauna, these mammoths and bison and horses, and they know that because they found the spores of a specific type of fungi, that only lives in dung. It's a dung fungus, and it needs huge amounts of this on the order of an African savanna with herds of animals. Oh, man. This disappears about 10 to 11,000 years ago and is replaced in the soil with charcoal. So the, this, our California went from a mm. huge grazing African savanna-type ecosystem to be the animals went extinct, the big megafauna, and it was replaced with apparently Native American burning. Fire mm -hmm. took over as the controlling factor. So I don't think there was a time when you, di you, you didn't have an in-between time. We never knew what grasslands were like, not impacted by some big process of change. Another relic that I wonder about is the uh, pronghorn antelope that you have beautiful pictures of. They're really fast. They're faster than uh, short-faced bear. They're faster than jaguars, I suspect. Uh, was there a cheetah here that was as fast as they were, and that's why they're still so speedy? Yeah, that's an interesting point, because why do you have this one of the fastest land animals ever, the pronghorn antelope? Mm -hmm. and How fast do they go? They're said to run like 70 miles per hour in short bursts and can sustain 50 miles per hour for an hour. So why, and coyotes can't run that fast, wolves are not that fast, so why, why do we have this animal that can run that fast? Well, there was a native cheetah in the Ice Age. There's a North American cheetah that might have been um, something that pushed the evolution of antelopes, and it's now extinct, and we just are left with fast antelopes. <laughs> it's interesting. You would expect evolution to sort of give them, let them cool out. There's a lot of missing niches out there, missing like gaps, I think. Well, we can bring the cheetah back. That'll be interesting, along with the grizzly. What the hell? Um, those horses. Uh, you did not draw those horses 10 or 20,000, 40,000 no, years ago. No, those weren't field sketches. Uh, you drew them with stripes. And stripes on the front. So from, you know, you front view it's a zebra and from the rear view it's something else. Did you make that up or how'd you get that? Yeah, I obviously made it up. But there's, um, when paleontologists look at really closely at the horse anatomy of these fossil horses, there were true horses, there were donkeys, zebras, a whole bunch of strange extinct types of horses that have some characters of a true horse and some characters of a zebra. For instance, there was in South Africa, have, has anyone heard of the quagga? Hmm. It was um, a zebra-like animal that had only stripes on the back and looked like a horse in front. So looking at this, the bones of this ancient California horse, which is in the La Brea Tar Pits, its fossils, 
it appeared to be somewhat like this quagga in its anatomy, half striped and half not. So the rest is imagination. And how big was this animal? It horse. was the size of a, a regular horse. It was you a pretty big animal. saddle it and ride it. Yeah, yeah. Bring it back. Um, a couple questions. One from Tristan about grasses here. One reads, uh, I've heard the grasses around the Bay Area used to be green all year round uh, before European grasses were introduced. Is that true? And Alexander McCormick uh, says, what about the grasses of the golden hills that we see everywhere? Is that native? Yeah, I spent a lot of time trying to find native grasses all over California, so I got a pretty good idea of actually looking at the grasses growing on the hills that if they were burned, they, these bunch grasses would be green into the summer. And if they weren't, because patches wouldn't be burned, mm. they had beautiful golden tall stalks. And so I think we had golden hills even a thousand years ago. But we also had some areas that would be quite green from all the native burning. So Kevin Kelly asks, are there any experiments now of, of doing uh, burning of the grasslands in a yearly way or in a way even as complex as the Indians used to be? Oh, yeah. I'm, there's um, all over where people are studying this. There's like, um, I think Stanford has a lot of research areas that have oaks and grass, and they are doing control burns to see how native... Up in Jasper Ridge or where? Hastings. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, and it, you know, national parks are That's taking funny. this too. Yosemite National Park has a whole program of burn control burning under the forests to try to mimic this ancient pattern of native burning, bring health back to the ecosystem. So, <clears throat> natives and aliens. Would be a few questions on these. Personally, I'm I'm a native plant Nazi, and uh, a bio bigot, as we're called. Um, so Lily asked, to what extent do you consider invasive species to be a threat? And Mary McAllister, McAllister asks, native plant advocates in San Francisco seem to believe they'll be replaceable to replace all our non-native trees with native trees. Based on your knowledge, do you think that's possible? I don't think, well, I'll take grasslands because I've really studied that. And I, we're never going to get rid of all the European annual grasses such as wild oats, um, sheet grass, all the brome grasses, they're here to stay. And that may be true for trees too. And I have two opinions on that because I sometimes just really would like to see nothing but natives. I, I can be a, a real native, um, like a fan. Nazi history. Yeah. <laughs> but then on the other hand, being practical, I, I, I think it's really interesting how all plants have a use and all plants have some interesting characters that you can um, collect native, uh, collect seeds from some of the introduced grasses and trees. Sometimes they're good wild, uh, wild bird food. So I'm kind of of two minds of that. I, but I don't think we're ever going to eradicate all invasive plants. And so there's another thing in the future that we can maybe adapt to them somehow. Well, okay, the eucalyptus, much loved, much hated. Uh, I love them by moonlight and with the wind blowing through them. And I guess the question in my mind is, as long as I've been in California, these very prominent eucalyptus trees, mostly blue gums, are you know, defining the, the landscape and, and uh, the nature of the undergrowth and all that sort of thing. How long before they get their green card? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I mean, is it a thousand years, 
200 years. We're almost up on probably 200 from some of the early ones that came here. Um, they so may should be we have a ceremony? Stay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, eucalyptus. Ha ha. So uh, John Gilmore asked, weren't the Berkeley Hills covered with redwoods in 1900 and then they were logged in 1906-08 to rebuild San Francisco? Uh, is this the case and how long had they been there? Yes, the, the part of the Oakland Berkeley Hills had a redwood forest and then north of that was all grassland and south of that was grassy ridges. There's some paintings you can see, grassy ridges and then right above Oakland, these tall redwoods that were used by sailors as navigation beacons because they're just gigantic. And they've been there since the Ice Age. I mean, redwoods are an ancient go back uh, mil tens of millions of years into the age of dinosaurs. So redwoods have been in California for millions of years. And that particular grove has probably been there for maybe 10, 20,000 years. But it's interesting. I, I've talked to a botanist who has looked at some of the old evidence of stumps, and he thinks some of those redwoods were taller than the redwoods in Redwood National Park, meaning they were the tallest in the world, right outside of Oakland. And they were all logged, and it's second growth now, but there might be some stumps out there that show evidence of just monstrous redwood trees. Now, there's a long-term project to regrow the redwoods of the Oakland Hills to be the tallest redwoods in the world again. Just a thousand years. Yeah. You know, bear down, people. <laughs> Question from Julia. Do you have plans to extend this project to other regions? 30 years per state times yeah. 50. <laughs> well, I now live in the desert, Mojave Desert of Nevada. I'm not even a Californian, so I'd like to do the Southern California deserts and Nevada Great Basin. That's my next project. And you're now collecting that data and painting yes. or what? And what do you find? Well, we're very interested in this at Long Now Foundation because we're aiming to build a 10,000-year clock in eastern Nevada over in Spring Valley, where I guess you've been. Um, so what's the sort of general picture of the last 10, 20,000 years in Nevada? What's been going on there? Well, it's interesting because it's not, of course, a lot of cities that you have to reconstruct, but mm. there have been vast times of epic drought where things were quite dry thousands of years ago, and then there were times of great lushness and lakes, water areas. So it's, it's a little more subtle than parts of California that have had so much um, building and development. You've but, probably spent time up around Pyramid Lake, which is sort of a relic of the of the ancient huge lakes that were in that area. And what do you, Pyramid Lake, if it's just this, it's not small, but it's small compared to what used to be there, uh, with mas mastodon bones sticking out of the silt, as I remember, uh, and Burning Man going up on top of the silt. <laughs> so, and deep. I mean, I was told that silt is like thousands of feet deep in parts of like the Black Rock Desert. So when you go back, what was Nevada like when it was those lakes? That's an amazing, um, yeah, the, those were Ice Age lakes that were huge. I mean, they were the size of, um, you know, the, the whole Salt Lake Basin near Salt Lake City. That was all covered with an enormous inland sea. And then parts of Nevada 
all interconnected, huge, uh, diverse fish faunas. And I just learned that the last mammoths, Colombian mammoths, were found right around that Pyramid Lake. So in other words, that that Mm -hmm. habitat was their favorite habitat about 10, 8,000 years ago. They had gone extinct all over North America except that part of Nevada, and then they that was their last stand. So there's something, the Ice Age remained there longer than anywhere else in the continent. Hmm. That suggests that Nevada, in a way, has greater extremes, uh, maybe because of the rain shadows here in Nevada. And, uh, so California is, what, somewhat modulated by being next to the ocean? Yeah, we have this beautiful Mediterranean climate. With It almost imitates... California, west of the Sierras, is more like 40 million years ago when we had the tertiary period and it was a little subtropical. And Nevada is more like the Ice Age with extreme cold and winds and um, intense temperature changes. So, yeah, we're pretty lucky here. It's a mild climate. So it sounds to me that if the temperature keeps going up because of anthropogenic climate change... Um, or whatever reason, it's getting warmer. The tuna are coming back. Um, California's redwoods, I guess, will be okay because it's moderated somewhat by this Mediterranean climate. But Nevada's going to be all over the map with climate change. Is that what it looks like from your standpoint? Yeah, I keep trying to research models of what, say, the deserts in Nevada are going to look like if we have um, a warming climate. And some areas will get rainier because it might, the, the rising sea surface temperature in the Gulf might produce more of a monsoon uh-huh. and produce more summer rain. Right. And other areas will get drier. So it's, it's tricky to, you know, pin, pin it down. It could be complex. Now, you mentioned a little earlier you like renewable energy, but I get a sense from your websites that you're not terribly fond of solar farms out in the desert, um, at least. Well, say a little more about that. Well, yeah, having moved to the desert and studying these long-term changes in um, these beautiful desert valleys, I discovered there's sort of a a good solar energy and a not-so-good type of solar energy. And um, (laughs) one of the good type is where you plaster all the roofs in a city with solar panels and hook it directly to the grid, and it's used right locally where you generate the energy. And this is fantastic to me. But there's another kind, which I kind of call the industrial model of solar, where they take a a valley full of desert tortoises and yuccas and Joshua trees, and they have to grade seven square miles flat and move all the tortoises to put these solar panels, which they could put on roofs. So that's, that's a... There's sort of a controversy there about um, we definitely need renewable energy as soon as we can, but there's sort of a, a good way to do it and maybe a less good way to do it. Well, there must be different sites. I mean, the, the, the thing you get in Nevada is a bit of everything, and so there's the sagebrush ocean of the, of the Great Basins that are pretty green. you got the Mojave, <clears throat> where you are, where much of it is pretty green. You also have these uh, salt flats that are really mineral, is it okay to put solar there? You know, that's interesting. I actually asked the solar companies, could you move it off this green, lush desert onto the, the flat? And they said, 
Well, that floods in the winter. All so, the rainwater comes, and you don't want to have your electric cables between the panels flooded with water. So that, apparently that's not technically a good place. Now, there are places I don't like, believe that for a minute. That's ridiculous. It's not, like, <laughs> it's not deep water. You know, this is not like well, an like, offshore or something. <laughs> I, I think that should, there should be a pilot study of can you do it in a floodable salt flat, because uh, why not? The there salt a, won't care, right? But there is a a good place um, that's been suggested, the Westlands Water District in the San Joaquin Valley that got cut off from its delta water. All those dying almond orchards, that land doesn't flood, and it's degraded farmland, so Mm. degraded with selenium salts, because they, they were these ancient ice age lake deposits have been sort of leaching up through the soil and ruining this farmland. Plus, there's not enough water. Plus, there's giant transmission lines going here that have open capacity. So we've been sort of advocating, we'll put these very large solar power plants right there. Who's we? Uh, I have a group called Basin and Range Watch that tries to advocate for um, sustainable use of our deserts. So... Well, thank you. Is, is Basin and Range Watch developing a map of sites that you would consider okay for big solar farms? We don't even need to. There's a, EPA has what's called a Repower America website, and they have something like millions of acres of degraded lands, like old mine sites, uh, Superfund sites that you could put solar panels on. So our work has been done for us. How about wind? Do you like wind, or is that a problem in Nevada? Wind can be bad in some ways if you have big industrial wind turbines right next to bat caves, such as in Spring Valley. Mm. They built this about two miles from oh, uh, I didn't think of that. the Rose Guano Bat Cave, which has a million yeah. Mexican free-tail bats that roost in this cave. And wind is so new in large quantities that they're, they have what they're going to do with this wind farm, the company will have a little radar installation that will try to detect the bat mass of bats, and they're actually saying they're going to turn the windmills off. And so that, we'll see. So you guys will be there watching? Yes, yes. We'll see how many dead bats there are. And so will we. This this bat cave she's speaking of is in the area where we aim to build a clock in Nevada. So people go visit the clock, they'll go visit the bat cave, and they'll help you keep track of whether they're turning the wind chargers off. We also expect, by the way, that a 10,000-year clock is not going to see 10,000 years of wind turbines in North Spring Valley. That this is something that will come and then go and be replaced by fusion or who knows what. And what's fun is you are setting in motion people paying attention to these kind of changes and this kind of life set of life forms in a large scale over thousands of years. We just think that's wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.